Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. Last week we discussed Roger Casement, an Irish nationalist and anti-colonial whistleblower. Who are we discussing this week, Ben? In 1992, four years before the sensational trial of O.J. Simpson, and six years before the sex scandal surrounding President Bill Clinton and his intern, Monica Lewinsky, another massively publicized media-driven trial swept the nation, and the subject was our subject this week, Eileen Warnos. Warnos, an itinerant sex worker, was arrested for the murders of seven men in or near Volusia County, Florida in 1989 and 1990. All of them had been shot while Warnos was on the job. All of them had been shot at point-blank range. A series of trials followed, in which Warnos pled self-defense, claiming that the men had raped her or threatened to. She had been turned into the police by her butch lover, the hotel maid Tyria Moore. She became, in the view of the public and the media, according to the filmmaker Nick Broomfield, who made two documentaries about her and about the media storm that came to surround her, a, quote, man-hating lesbian prostitute who tarnished the reputations of her victims, end quote a useful foil for family values string-em-up-dead politicians who wanted to show that they were tough on crime. Never receiving more than comically incompetent legal representation, which is not uncommon in the United States, where you get the justice system you can afford to buy, she languished on death row for years. I'm going to say right now that this is an episode that deals very frankly with sexual violence and other kinds of violence, including sexual violence against children, murder, sexual abuse and assault, and graphic depictions of all of the above. Listeners who would prefer not to hear graphic depictions of those topics should probably skip this episode entirely. We are not going to give any content warnings for further descriptions beyond that point because the episode would otherwise mostly be content warnings. So here's your opportunity to stop listening if you'd rather not hear about this stuff. We don't want to subject anything to anybody they don't want to hear, but um, there's just no way to talk about this case without being very frank. Um, And unfortunately, the story of sexual violence begins very young here, so um, now would be a great time to stop listening if you do not want to hear um, that kind of content. So, uh, Warnos was born Eileen Carroll Pittman on February 29, 1956, in Troy, Michigan. Her mother, Diane, was only 14 years old when she married her father, Leo Pittman, uh, on June 3, 1954. Her older brother was born uh, less than a year later, and after t- less than two years of marriage, two months before Eileen was born, Diane filed for divorce. The reasons she filed for divorce are the reasons why Eileen never met her father. He was incarcerated by the time of her birth, having been diagnosed with schizophrenia and being convicted of sex crimes against children. He committed suicide by hanging in prison on January 30, 1969. When Eileen was four, Diane abandoned her and her brother, leaving them with their maternal grandparents, Lori and Britta Warnos, they were Finnish immigrants, uh, who legally adopted Keith and Eileen in March of 1960. By the age of 11, uh, Warnos was engaging in sexual activities in school in exchange for cigarettes, drugs, and food. She had also, by this age, engaged in sex with her brother. She later said that her alcoholic grandfather had sexually assaulted and beaten her when she was a child. Numerous men would later remember losing their virginity to Eileen in her early teens. Sometimes she would have group sex with six or more boys, including her brother. They called her Cigarette Pig, and when she tried to form attachments to the boys she had sex with, she was rejected. In 1970, at age 14, she became pregnant, having been raped by a friend of her grandfather's with his warning and help, with his knowledge and help, rather. Warnos gave birth to a boy in 1971 at a home for unwed mothers, and the child was placed up for adoption. When Warnos was 15, her grandfather threw her out of the house, and she began living outside in the woods near her old home and supporting herself through sex work. She dropped out of school and quickly discovered the release that could be offered by drugs and alcohol. At this age, she began to be a regular consumer of marijuana, LSD, alcohol, and tranquilizers. She would sleep in abandoned cars or in the woods near their home. Her grandmother died of cirrhosis brought on by alcoholism. At the funeral, Eileen smoked in front of the coffin and was reported to say, quote, If I want to blow smoke in the old slob's face, I will. When her birth mother, Diane, returned for the funeral, she was shocked to see that her children were homeless, but she had two new children of her own in Texas and was living off of social assistance, and so um, welfare rules meant that she was not allowed to bring Keith and Eileen back with her. 
Her brother Keith joined the army in 1974 before dying of cancer two years later, and her grandfather committed suicide in 1976 by running his car engine in a closed garage. So it was in her late teens that Eileen's circle of hitchhiking and sex work began to expand. On May 27, 1974, at the age of 18, she was arrested for the first time in Jefferson County, Colorado, for driving under the influence, disorderly conduct, and firing a pistol from a moving vehicle. She was later charged with failure to appear in court. In order to escape the cold winters in the north, she began to travel more and more often to Florida. And one day in Florida, she was picked up on the street by a man named Louis Gratz Fell. He was a yacht club president and a retired 69-year-old who wanted a cute young thing to have on his arm. The two soon became engaged, and he gave her a large diamond ring. The unlikely marriage made the newspaper social pages. But after returning to Michigan with her new husband to introduce him to her family, Eileen began to drink again. Fell obtained a restraining order, later claiming that Eileen had demanded more and more money from him and beaten him with his cane when he refused to give it to her. A month after the wedding, he filed for divorce. After her brother Keith died of esophageal cancer, Warnos received $10,000 from his life insurance. Uh, she was later given a fine for drunk driving and used the money inherited from her brother to pay that fine and ended up spending the rest of the, uh, the money within two months buying luxuries, including a new car, which she wrecked shortly afterwards. She then spent the next ten years drifting, living on the fringes of the highway system, living in cars and motels, working as a hitchhiking sex worker. Hitchhiking sex workers face among the highest rates of violence in the United States. This is a hard life, one in which there are few places to turn to help. Choices are often made under extreme duress. You can't exactly turn to the police to help you because the police are as likely to victimize you as they are to help you. It was at this time that she began to accrue an, a longer arrest record. After settling into a relationship in Florida with an auto worker named Jay Watts, uh, the two ended up having an argument. The next morning, convinced their relationship was over, Eileen took a six-pack of beer and drove off in the car that Watts had restored for her. She got drunk on the beach, bought a handgun at a pawn shop, some bullets at Kmart, and some whiskey at a liquor store that she used to wash down a handful of benzodiazepines. Suicidal and dressed in a bikini, she held up a convenience store, stealing $35 and two packages of cigarettes. She claimed she wanted Watts to come to rescue her. She was sentenced to prison in May of 1982 and released in June of 1983. Less than a year later, in May of 1984, she was arrested in Key West, Florida for attempting to pass forged checks. In November 1985, she was named as the suspect in a theft of a gun in Pasco County, Florida. In January of 1986, she was arrested in Miami and charged with car theft, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice. Miami police officers found a revolver and ammunition in the stolen car. In June of 1986, Volusia County sheriffs detained Warnos for questioning after a male companion, probably a client, accused her of pulling a gun in his car and demanding money. It was after this arrest in 1987 at a lesbian bar that Warnos met Tyria Moore, who was working as a hotel maid. Moore was butch with short hair, although she would be played by the much more slender and conventionally attractive and sort of Hollywood-looking Christina Ricci in the 2003 Patty Jenkins film Monster. Despite Warnos initially claiming not to be lesbian, the two quickly settled into a relationship of sorts. The academic Megan Foley said, quote, The press, and especially the television tabloid shows, had a field day with the story about what they called the man-hating murderer, apparently because Ms. Warnos was an admitted lesbian. However, despite all the media hype, Eileen Warnos was not an admitted lesbian. In interviews, she repeatedly refused the label lesbian, explaining that she and Tyria Moore, the woman news reports consistently described as her lesbian lover, were like sisters and just tight friends. Warnos's biographer Sue Russell corroborated, We'll never know the X factor that tipped her into serial murder, but the media's man-hating lesbian label was off the mark. The media's unexamined insistence that Eileen Warnos killed men because she was a man-hating lesbian, despite her own repeated and widely publicized claims to the contrary, marks a popular investment in disarticulating heteronormative femininity from predatory violence. Through this articulation of lesbian, man-hating, and serial killing, media reports affirmed the safety and nonviolence of heterosexual domesticity, organized by norms of female passivity. End quote. It does seem that as the, although she rejected the label of lesbian, the two had a tight and rather possessive relationship. 
They moved in together soon after they met. Eileen would supplement Moore's income by hitchhiking from highway exit to highway exit turning tricks. The couple's landlords would later recall that on some days the woman wouldn't leave their rooms except to buy beer, cigarettes, and snacks. Daytona Beach, Florida had a population of 331 in 1910 and began experiencing double-digit and sometimes quadruple-digit decade-on-decade population growth starting in the 1920s. By the 1980s, the city was settling out at its current size of approximately 61,000 inhabitants. It's a tourist destination for working-class families, NASCAR fans, bikers, and college students on spring break. It's built environments a sea of strip malls, roadside bars, and big-box stores. 18% of people in Daytona Beach live in poverty. Supporting the tourist industry is a world of low-paid people, a permanent underclass accruing on the margins of quick-build developments and discount vacations. Eileen and Tyria, Lee and Ty, were constantly moving from motel to motel, whether evicted for noise from their fights or for failure to pay rent. Eileen kept to herself, but Tyria kept up her own social circle. By the autumn of 1989, Lee and Ty were living at the Ocean Shores Motel in Ormond Beach, and Ty was working as a housekeeper at the nearby Casa del Mar Hotel. Florida is beautiful, but does not naturally sustain human life. It is swampy, there are hurricanes, and the built environment is constantly succumbing to decay and degradation. Photos of the Ocean Shores Motel taken recently show a low barracks-like building across the street from the beach, walls stained, surrounded by high weeds and an empty parking lot. On November 30, 1989, Eileen went out to hitchhike and make some money. Years of a difficult life reflected in her worn face and neglected teeth. Street sex workers often attract clients seeking sex with women they would not normally be seen with, women that they can feel superior to, that they feel that they can degrade. Ty would later testify that Eileen returned the next day driving a Cadillac that she said was borrowed. They had been planning to move to an apartment once they could afford it. Lee said she had made a lot of money and they could move that day. They packed their things and drove over, and then Eileen drove off to return the car. That night, in the apartment, Eileen convinced that she had killed a man that day, saying that she had shot him and hit him in the woods. The car, she said, was his. She pawned off the belongings using an alias, and when police found the cars a few weeks later, they found it empty and clean of fingerprints. The car was registered to the 51-year-old Richard Mallory, but the seat was pulled forward farther than it should have been given Mallory's height, and there was a bloodstain on the backrest of the driver's seat. A few days later, on December 13th, Mallory's body was found wrapped in a carpet by a group of men scrounging for recyclables. He was face down, fully clothed, and had been shot four times in the chest, point blank. Eileen claimed, as she would claim about all seven of her victims, that she had killed in self-defense. This claim was mocked, but it would later claim out, come out that Richard Mallory, at least, had a history of violence towards women. According to Warnos at her trial, this is what Richard Mallory did to her on the night of November 30th, 1989. Quote, I went to Tampa and made a little money hustling. I was hitchhiking home at night. This guy picked me up right outside of Tampa, underneath the bridge. So he's smoking pot, and we're going down the road, and he says, do you want a drink? So we're drinking, and we get pretty drunk. Then around 5 o'clock in the morning, he says, okay, do you want to make your money now? So we go into the woods. He's hugging and kissing on me. He starts pushing me down. And I said, wait a minute, you know, get cool. You don't have to get rough, you know. Let's have fun. I said I would not have sex with him. Yes, you are, bitch. You're going to do everything I tell you. If you don't, I'm going to kill you and have sex with you after you're dead, just like the other sluts. It doesn't matter. Your body will still be warm. He tied my wrist to the steering wheel and screwed me in the ass. Afterwards, he got a Visine bottle filled with rubbing alcohol out of the trunk. He said the Visine bottle was one of my surprises. He emptied it into my rectum. It really hurt bad because he tore me up a lot. He got dressed, got a radio, sat on the hood for what seemed like an hour. I was really pissed. I was yelling at him and struggling to get my hands free. Eventually, he untied me, put a stereo wire around my neck, and tried to rape me again. Then I thought to myself, well, this dirty bastard deserves to die anyway because of what he was trying to do to me. We struggled. I reached for my gun. I shot him. I scrambled to cover the shooting because I don't think the police would have believed I killed him in self-defense. I have to say that, that I killed them all because they got violent with me and I tried to defend myself. I wasn't going to let him beat the shit out of me or kill me either. I'm sure if after the fighting they found I had a weapon, they would have shot me. So I just shot them. And as Philip Chesler, Phyllis Chesler rather, noted in a contemporary essay in the feminist journal Off Our Backs, 
evidence about Mallory's specific record of violence against women and sex workers, as well as broader evidence about violence against sex workers, was suppressed and not introduced in Eileen's trials. Eileen's second kill, six months later, was David Spears, who was a married family man, and his kindness and faultless morals were held up as proof that Eileen was some sort of unique monster. His decomposing naked body was discovered a few weeks after he was supposed to arrive at his daughter's college graduation. He had been shot nine times point-blank and twice in the back. According to Eileen's later confession, he picked her up hitchhiking and drove off to have sex with her. She claimed he threatened her with a lead pipe, after which she shot him and stole $500. She then abandoned his body and drove home in the truck, which she later abandoned. Next came Charles Edmund Carscadden, aged 40, on May 31, 1990. He was a part-time rodeo worker whose body was found on June 6 in Pasco County, Florida. He had been shot eight times. The body had been wrapped in an electric blanket and was badly decomposing when it was found. Witnesses saw Warnos in possession of his car, and she also pawned a gun identified as belonging to him, and that was some of the evidence that ended up getting her caught. Next came Peter Seams, age 65, who was a retired merchant seaman, who devoted a lot of his time to Christian outreach in the missionary world. In June of 1990, he left his hometown of Jupiter, Florida, on his way to Arkansas, and on July 4th, his car was found in Orange Springs, Florida. Um, witnesses saw Moore and Warnos abandoning the car, and uh, Warnos's palm print was found on the interior door handle, but his body was never found. Next came Eugene Burris, a truck driver who failed to come home on July 30th, 1990. His body was found on August 4th off of a small dirt road, lying face down, shot twice. According to Eileen, he picked her up and they had agreed to have sex, but Eugene then threw money at her and threatened to rape her, so she killed him. On September 11th, Dick Humphreys, a former Alabama police officer, was discovered slumped over and shot seven times in deserted terrain behind a housing development. Um, and her last kill was on November 17, 1990. Walter Hieno Antonio, who was a trucker, a security guard, and a member of the local reserve police force, picked Eileen up and they agreed to have sex. According to Eileen, he then flashed police ID and demanded sex for free. This is not uncommon. Vice cops are notorious for raping and assaulting sex workers. The two struggled, and Eileen said she shot him several times and then took his gold and diamond ring. Four of these victims were shot in the same county, Volusia, and the pattern was quickly spotted. Using the palm print, police traced her to one of the aliases she had used to pawn off some of the men's possessions. Police initially assumed that Warnos and Moore were a team. When sketches were released of the two women, Moore broke up with Eileen and went home to Ohio. She was panicked, the police knew about some of the murders, and she had ridden in at least three of the stolen cars. On January 9, 1991, Eileen Warnos was arrested on an outstanding warrant, The Last Resort, a biker bar in Volusia County, Florida. Police located Moore the next day in Scranton, Pennsylvania, who agreed to get a confession out of Warnos in exchange for immunity from prosecution. She returned with the police to Florida, where she was put up in a motel and made telephone calls to Warnos pleading for help in clearing her name. Three days later, on January 16th, Warnos confessed to the murders, claiming the men had tried to rape her and that she killed them in self-defense. One year later, on January 14th, 1992, Warnos went to trial for the murder of Mallory. Although previous convictions are normally not admissible as evidence in criminal trials, under Florida law, the prosecution was allowed to introduce evidence related to her other crimes to show a pattern of illegal activity. Meanwhile, her lawyers, Trish Jenkins and Ed Bonnet, publicly appointed, appointed free defenders, chose not to have any expert witnesses discuss violence against sex workers, nor did they have anyone testify to Warnazo's traumatic childhood, the history of sexual abuse in her life, or any of Mallory's previous crimes against women. On January 27th, after a short trial and deliberation, Warnas was convicted. Despite psychiatrists testifying that she was mentally unstable, she was sentenced to death. Many police and court officers were implicated through rumor and other reporting uh, that they had actually, uh, during the trial, even been uh, selling their stories to movie producers and uh, making a lot of money off of being involved in this sensational case. Capital punishment is a legal penalty in the state of Florida. Since 1976, the state has executed 99 convicted murderers, and as of February 4th, 2020, 340 offenders are awaiting execution on Florida's death row. 
In 2001, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, quote, I have yet to see a death case among the dozens coming to the Supreme Court on eve of execution stay applications in which the defendant was well represented at trial. People who are well represented at trial do not get the death penalty. While in the United States justice system, you're supposed to have the right to legal representation, according to the ACLU, quote, Capital cases are among the most emotionally and financially draining cases imaginable. Lawyers must be extremely knowledgeable and diligent to navigate the complex maze of federal and state procedures governing these cases. They demand hundreds of hours of preparation and extensive resources. Since most defendants cannot afford a lawyer, they must rely on the state to provide them with representation, and few states provide adequate funds to compensate lawyers for their work or to investigate cases properly. As a result, capital defendants are frequently represented by inexperienced, overworked, and in many cases incompetent lawyers. Harsh reports about the abysmal quality of state-appointed state legal representation for people accused of murder are common. A recent report on indigent defense found that judges often appointed defense attorneys not based on their competence or experience, but based on their reputation for rapidly moving cases through the system. The study concluded that death row prisoners face a one-in-three chance of being executed without ever having the case properly investigated by a competent attorney or having any claims of innocence or unfairness heard. On March 31, 1992, Warnos pleaded no contest to the murders of Humphrey, Burris, and Spheres. She said that she wanted to get right with God. She said in her statement to court, quote, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but these others did not. They only began to start to. For those murders, she was given three more death sentences. In June of 1992, she pleaded guilty to the murder of Carscadden. In November, she, relieved, uh, she received her fifth death sentence. Uh, at this last trial, the defense did make some efforts to introduce evidence that Mallory had been tried for intent to commit rape in Maryland and had been committed to a correctional facility for sexual offenders there. Um, between 1958 and 1962, Mallory was committed to that center for treatment and observation, resulting from a charge of assault with intent to rape, and received eight years of treatment from that facility but the judge refused to allow that to be admitted in court as evidence and denied Warnos's request for a retrial. And in February 1993, she pleaded guilty to the last murder and was sentenced to her sixth death sentence. Uh, no charges were brought against her for the murder of Seams because his body could not be found. Warnos's story about um, these murders would change over time. Uh, she did claim that it was in self-defense, and then she ended up changing her story uh, claiming that she just wanted to rob them and leave no witnesses as the reason for murder. In the meantime, during these trials, the case became a media frenzy. This is a moment of the sort of peak uh, power possession of the pro-family conservative movement in the United States, and there were a series of moral panics. Uh, Warnos was widely publicized as the, quote, first female serial killer. To quote Megan Foley again, quote, even though acknowledging that Wuornos is not the only female killer in history, these media reports suggested that there was something particularly masculine that distinguished Wuornos from other murderesses. Serial murder experts explained that, like male serial killers, Eileen Wuornos enjoyed the power she felt over her victims. Quote, being a serial killer is all about power, and maybe about being a man. The parallelism between about power and about being a man in this statement equates power with being a man linking serial killing to both. Yet while the press depicted Warnos as killing for power like a man, they also took her serial killing as evidence of a hateful desire to overpower men. A serial murder expert quoted in USA Today explained, It's like a hunter looking at a trophy to prove he was stronger or more powerful than his adversary. What you have here is a feeling of power and control over someone who is hated. You don't have to be an $80 an hour doctor to see she had a hatred of men. While the interviewee likened Warnos to men to describe her as predatory and power-hungry, using the masculine pronouns he and his in his analogy, he stated at the same time that she hated men and wanted to overpower them. End quote. This is also a moment when, according to the scholar Kyra Pearson, feminism was being embodied in the stereotype of the violent, vengeful woman. Pearson writes, quote, Despite the popularity of Charlie's Angels, lethal women in deadly doll films from the early 1990s, like Thelma and Louise and Basic Instinct, were accused of polluting the political with a strand of toxic feminism. Warnos earned the rather distinguished honor of becoming feminism's first serial killer. Uh, 
Like Warnos, women who kill or maim men often propel feminism into the mass-mediated public sphere, not because of violence done to women, but because of violence done to the male body. End quote. Some feminists, like Phyllis Chesler, uh, identified with Warnos and helped uh, try to get her new trials. Um, and some lesbian feminists identified with her even more strongly. The Coalition to Free Eileen Warnos displayed a banner encouraging participants at the 1993 March on Washington for Gay and Lesbian Rights to support dykes who fight back. This was not shared by all lesbians, even by all radical lesbians. The lesbian Avengers in New York hesitated to support her, believing that she might not be a lesbian or that there might be women more worthy of the group's support. This is also all happening in a political environment of uh, the sort of tough-on-crime 1990s. This is a moment in the United States when crime was a major political issue. The crime rate was high, and there were plenty of criminals to lock up, and people wanted them locked up. Paul Waldman, who was a political consultant working for Democratic campaigns at that time, and remembered that in the U.S., uh, state prosecutors are elected and have to face election and television advertisements, just like every other politician, he wrote, quote, at the time, the question was never, is this proposed measure to increase prison sentences a good idea? The only question asked by politicians from both parties was whether it couldn't be made much tougher. If you suggested that tough might not be the best standard by which a policy should be judged, you were risking your political career. Republicans embraced this zeitgeist with glee, and Democrats embraced it out of abject fear. Of course, it was all tinged with the inescapable whiff of race. The most famous soft-on-crime attack from the era was George H.W. Bush's assault on Michael Dukakis over the Willie Horton case. H.W. enthusiastically led one of the most despicable campaigns of racist fear-mongering in the history of American politics, end quote. As I said, prosecutors too were elected, and so felt under pressure by people whipped up by this media frenzy to put people away and to seek more death sentences. In 1992, during Eileen's trials, Bill Clinton, during his first presidential campaign, made a show of flying especially back to Arkansas to preside over the execution of a mentally ill black man, Ricky Ray Rector, who had been convicted of shooting a white cop, and he held a campaign event at a Georgia prison in front of an all-black chain gang. Today, in our present moment of ironic, or is it, misandry, Warnos's story continues to resonate. In May 2019, Cardi B released her single Press with the cover art recreating Eileen Warnos's mugshot in a prison jumpsuit, handcuffs raised around her neck. Activists like Danny Love, an advocate for black women's liberation and sex workers' rights who goes by the handle at Black Sapphic, saw the image as a symbol of solidarity. This is so political, she tweeted. I actually strongly support this. I respect it. I'm actually mind-blown like this. She was asked about that statement by Vice, and she clarified, quote, it's really easy for society to paint women and other oppressed people as villains when they react in unhinged ways that are often violent. But it's important to look at how capitalism, cis-heterosexist patriarchy, and misogyny really put her in many of the positions she was in that made her murder. She was a victim of so many structural oppressions. Sex workers in her field lack protection, which allows violence to happen. Sex workers cannot go to the police for help because they are directly connected to the oppression of so many marginalized groups who are often sex workers. Women black and other people of color, LGBT people. The actor and drag performer Willem Belli released a Warnos-inspired musical parody video based on Dolly Parton's Jolene in 2018. At the time, he told Billboard magazine, quote, I've always been kind of obsessed with Eileen Warnos because one of my aunts was a truck stop to her too, and I've done all the things that she's done except kill people. I've hooked, I've bleached my hair, I've walked down I-95, I've done all of it. Uh, also in an email to Vice, this is part of an article about Warnos's uh, ongoing cultural relevance that we'll cite, of course, in the show notes. Belli said that he emphasized with Eileen's history of trauma and abuse, quote, Eileen's upbringing of trauma and abuse and neglect seriously handicapped her chances of ending up a productive member of society without a serious redirect somewhere. She was obviously held responsible for her actions by the court, but I'm hoping the people that turned her into the troubled individual she was also reap some sort of karmic punishment if Eileen's bullets didn't already seal that deal. End quote. Warnas's fate had been sealed by her incompetent legal representation. As her time in prison continued, her will to fight faded. Nick Broomfield's two documentaries document her mental decline. She began accusing prison matrons of tainting her food with dirt and urine 
and said that she had overheard conversations among prison personnel trying to get her to commit suicide. She also complained of strip searches, handcuffing, door kicking, window checks, low water pressure, mildew, and catcalling. She threatened to boycott showers and food trays. During an interview with the filmmaker Nick Broomfield, when she thought the cameras were off, she told him that uh, she did not actually want to go back on her claim that it was self-defense, that it was self-defense, all of the murders, but she was saying that it wasn't in order to hasten her own execution, because she could not stand being on death row where she had at that point been for 10 years, and she wanted to die. Her fate was sealed by Governor Jeb Bush, who had been elected in 1998 on a pro-family string-up-the-criminals platform. After a perfunctory psychiatric evaluation, her execution was scheduled on October 9, 2002. Her last words, which referenced science fiction movies, were widely reported as evidence of her insanity. While she may not have been fixed fit for execution, even according to the lax standards of the United States, and let me be clear, my position is that no one is fit for execution, because no one should be executed by the state. I am struck by the intellectual and moral clarity of Warnas's other last statement, to the documentarian Nick Broomfield, at her final interview, the day before her assassination. Quote, Because I am at a retaliation for taking my life like this, and getting rich off it all these years. Total pathological lie. Yeah, thanks a lot. I lost my fucking life because of it. Couldn't even get a fair trial. Couldn't even get a fair investigation or nothing. Couldn't even have my pills right. You sabotaged my ass society, and the cops and the system. A raped woman got executed. It was used for books and movies and shit. Ladder climbs, re-elections and everything else. I put the finger on all your faces. Thanks a lot. You are inhumane. You're an inhumane bunch of fucking living bastards, and you're going to get your asses nuked in the end, and pretty soon it's coming. 2019, a rock's supposed to hit you anyhow. You're all going to get nuked. You don't take fucking human life like this and just sabotage it and rip it apart like Jesus on the cross and say thanks a lot for all the fucking money I made off of you and not care about a human being and the truth being told. Now I know what Jesus was going through. They've been trying to tell the truth and I keep getting stepped on, concerned about if I was raped, if I'm, I'm not giving you more book and movie info, I'm giving you info for investigations and stuff and that's it. We're going to have to cut this interview, Nick. I'm not going to go into any more detail. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. Okay, let's go. We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff, Patreon. T-shirts, episode archive is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. Uh, thanks for that, Ben. That's a um, truly upsetting, horrifying story. Um, and I think you did a really good job of sort of portraying a lot of the causes and um, traumas that she suffered in her early life, a bit like uh, Nick Broomfield's film, which a lot of stories about warn us sort of leave out. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot, and, and it's it's difficult to know how to even tell the story or to talk about the story without participating in her further re-victimization. I mean, it's it, the only thing that I could try to do or think to try to do, the only approach I could think to try to take was to be clinical, as clinical as possible, to be honest, and to try to uh, just describe what happened without sensationalizing it. There's very little available, very, uh, you know, we'll talk about this when we get to the sources, but Basically, all of the sources on her life, uh, even maybe including Brumfield's films, which are very good, um, participate somehow in the sort of re-victimization or the re-sensationalization of this. I mean, I, I found myself having to – at least Brumfield's films are um, sort of relatively even-handed um, with a lot of the other sources. And again, I'll, I'll sort of do this source by source at the end. I found myself having to – read around uh, enormous prejudices, whether against women, against sex workers, um, against poor people, um, in order to get whatever information out of those sources I could, because all of these sources are just written 
and kind of constructed to portray her as, you know, as you said, as this like evil man hating lesbian monster. Um, or, um, in one feminist reading as a kind of totally passive, helpless victim who shows why uh, sex work should be illegal, or in another kind of feminist reading as this kind of, uh, well, yeah, she was a man-hating lesbian, but yeah, we love that. So, and, and none of those, I think, quite do justice to the, to the full human being um, or to uh, why she might have done what she did. So um, it, it was very difficult to know what tone to take. And I'm glad you think that I found the right one. And um, I hope our listeners think so too. And, and they should totally feel free to write in and, and uh, let us know um, what they think as well. Yeah. And the Broomfield films um, are fascinating, especially the second one where um, even though Broomfield uh, treats her with, reasonably reasonable high degree of like respect and and i think you get that back off eileen vornos that she she wants to speak to nick broomfield and she regards him as someone she can speak to she still is um discussing a lot in that film the fact that she realized that, that her she's been sort of um uh, used to tell this story for the media and that she's uh, uh, going to be made into like a film star uh, like a story etc um and uh, uh, she she sort of realised that, and Broomfield, uh, to a certain extent, allows this idea to be played that she's sort of paranoid, but she's clearly not about those specific issues. Like it, like the the police almost certainly were selling um selling their story before the trial had even taken place. Right. You know. N- now, were you know at one point she claimed that she was being mind controlled in her cell by sonic waves. Was that happening? Maybe not. Uh, was she being abused in the Florida prison system? Almost certainly. Most people are. It is an abusive system. It is an abusive system by nature, and it is abusive. And it is an abusive system by an, an, a system whose abusiveness is increased by um, purposeful policy decisions, um, and by neglect, and by underfunding, and by overcrowding, um, and. In addition to that, uh, yes, I mean, her story was being sold. People were making money off of her. A year after she died, um, a film was made by Patty Jenkins called Monster. I actually haven't seen that film. It is, by reports, a fairly good one. Um, but Charlize Theron, uh, a very uh, a fine actress, but a very, you know, sort of successful, beautiful Hollywood actress, um, was, uh, you know, feted and celebrated in the media for her, quote, bravery in, you know, putting on a lot of makeup and gaining, I think, 30 pounds and uh, playing this woman in this very kind of unglamorous role. And she won the Oscar for that. You know, now, great, you know, by all accounts, it's not a disrespectful movie, but even something like that is still, I mean, people are making millions of dollars. This is a big studio production that's winning Oscars, and Charlize Theron now has a big gold statuette on her uh, on her mantelpiece, um, and uh, Warnos never saw any benefit from any of that. I mean, this is somebody who, from the age of fifteen, was uh, homeless or only itinerantly housed. Uh, was in many cases uh, in Michigan uh, sleeping outside. I mean, you remember that part in the Broomfield documentary where she shows uh, her frostbite injuries that she received when she was sleeping outside at fifteen. In the snow, in the winter. I mean, it's it's it it's it's an astonishing um, experience of of uh, abuse and neglect and trauma, and um, and uh, it's uh, sort of goes totally unaccounted for in this um, sort of sensationalized idea that this is just some like you know man hating lesbian or women gone too far or 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 whatever whatever that sort of media sort of trash media vision of this uh was i mean and the other thing to go back to the media again a little bit you remember also in that in that Brimfield documentary he uh, the second one um he um shows uh tv footage from the day of her execution and the national tv networks came up with a special logo like a special screen graphic for eileen warnas execution day i mean that is absolutely fucking insane i think the screen graphic is was um was a date with death a date with death with a picture of her face and like a special graphic design like that is ludicrous yeah i mean it was clear that the entire thing was uh, consumed as entertainment almost from the get-go. Absolutely. And I remember this. I mean, not well, but I was about 10 years old when she was executed, and I remember her name from that time. And they really, I mean, they only ever showed photos of her um, that made her look t- 
totally like wide-eyed and unhinged and crazed. Um, and that, um, kind of portrayal and that understanding of, um, mental illness and lesbianism and man-hating as being this kind of, uh, interconnected multi-headed hydra that was coming to like castrate the american male um was just so clearly a part of the response to this and so clearly a part of why it became such a huge story that again did well by a whole lot of people but not by her and also it must be said not by the people who she did kill yeah i'm interested as well of the murders and then the trial and her time imprisonment leading up to her execution happening um, in this sort of 90s, late cult, US culture war environment and how the lesbianism played into that. I mean, I feel like you're you're quite clear in saying that um, some of the ways that she was sort of maybe reclaimed by feminists as an icon is almost as troubling in terms of her um, uh, being further utilised, you know, against her will, you know, this narrative that isn't true or hers being being imposed upon her but how was that constructed in term uh, from the other side in terms of her being this uh, man-hating lesbian um i mean would would that happen today probably um on fox yeah i mean uh, not even on fox uh, i think on 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 quite mainstream media but i think at that time and you think about it this is the this is a moment and this cultural reference came up before but this is not so long after the release of the film Thelma and Louise, right? Um, and this is also uh, the aftermath or the, the murders and trials happen in the moment of and then the um, her time on death row and the execution happens in the aftermath of um, the early 1990s uh, political correctness gone mad cycle that we seem to now be living through the hellish, um, you know, first time as tragedy, second time as farce, third time as LARP uh, version of now. And so uh, in this moment of increased queer and lesbian visibility, and this is a moment of the politics of queer nation, the politics of ACT UP, the politics of the lesbian Avengers, um, there's this backlash, right, of hasn't this all gone too far? Um, Aren't these just, you know, these man-hating lesbians are just a new version of the old uh, evil bra-burning, castrating feminist? Um, You know, we all know what that means. They're coming to get you. They're coming to get the American family man. Um, and that can take different permutations, right? There's the version of it where they're coming to get the, you know, good Christian father, the good patriarch, the person going to his daughter's college graduation, or the person who was never mean in his life. Or there's the version with maybe the first uh, murder with someone who's a more troubling uh, male figure where it's, oh, she's just coming for the, you know, fun-loving uh, American male. So whether you're thinking about her, her, her people that she killed as being, um, as being, uh, you know, fun-loving men just sort of out on the town trying to have a fun night with with a hooker, or whether you're thinking about them as, you know, uh, just good men who were, you know, maybe weren't even trying to uh, hire her, but were instead just offering to give her a ride, and then she preyed on them, and blah, blah, blah. Either way, it's a media construction and a kind of social construction in which um, the evil, wide-eyed, crazed, man-hating lesbian is you know, coming to get you and coming to get you in this very violent and graphic way and coming to get masculinity in this very violent and graphic way. Um, the, another interesting thing that happened in the in the Patty Jenkins film uh, in Monster is that, and I mentioned this earlier, that uh, Tyria Moore was a sort of heavy set woman, um, you might say butch, you know, short hair. And um, in the movie, she's portrayed by Christina Ricci, who is very much not any of those things. And I mean, is given a different name in the film, to be fair. I think some of this had to do with the fact that Moore, uh, Moore was still alive. Um, but I think also just through the perspective of thinking about media depictions of lesbianism, it's like the, the, the most popular media depiction of her couldn't understand her as potentially the more femme of the of the pair does that make sense yeah like she had to be the she had to be the man like in in, and some of these in some of these um in some of these uh, depictions we saw in the in the in the excerpts from foley that i was quoting literally they'll talk about eileen warnos and then say a serial killer like this has to think this about his victims like she she just she has to be like it's and in some ways the in some ways the problem uh, is that she's trying to be male or trying to access this kind of male power um you know what more than a pistol is a, you know a pistol is like the ultimate phallus right uh, not to get too uh, psychoanalytic here but but that's my kind of um vulgar psychoanalytic mm-hmm. uh feminist take there yeah there also seems to be this moment of um 
this extremely toxic mix of this media mediatization of the story, the, the the fact that this narrative is being produced while she's still alive, with the U.S. legal and political system uh, coming together, and um, you really see it in the Broomfield documentary, and I think you've also um, done a great job of sort of explaining that, um, which is that uh, there is a natural end or denouement to the story that is offered to the viewer, which can be provided in the re-election campaign of one of the Bushes. Absolutely, yeah. And so the in 2002, uh, Warnos is executed a month before election day when Bush, uh, Jeb Bush is running for re-election. Um, and that's very much scheduled. The governor has the power to determine when executions happen and what order. And it was very much scheduled to burnish his tough on crime um, bona fides. And again, this is not just a Bush thing because remember that Bill Clinton did the same goddamn thing yeah, yeah. Um, in 1992 uh, when he was flying home to Arkansas to execute a mentally ill person, to execute somebody who uh, was really not even mentally competent to stand trial, you could say. And I, I don't, I don't want to describe, um, I don't want to describe um, mentally issues or developmental disabilities in terms of competence, but just that's the term, that's the legal term that's used, mentally competent to stand trial. Um, obviously, itself a problematic term, but that aside, Clinton flies back to Arkansas in order to oversee that execution. It's a moment of just profound and bipartisan let M fry, hang M up. And so if the if the canonical figure of this tough on crime era is the super predator, right? The sort of mythic urban teen, uh black urban youth who is, you know, high on gangster rap music and um, you know, coming to rob you or shoot you or whatever um and and maybe the there's the female corollary to the super predator which is the the crack mother right the the mother giving birth to these supposed crack babies that are going to be developmentally disabled for life and that are going to uh, be born addicted to crack which by the way is not true and is a complete racist fabrication that doesn't that's not how it works um then Warnos is this kind of corollary or the queer corollary, corollary the, the lesbian corollary, right? The, the sort of uh, here's the man-hating lesbian who's going to come and get you and, and I, the good patriarchal Bush governor, uh, will show you my commitment to, um, to this system of violence and to these structures of violence by stringing her up um, in a very kind of public way and the media will, uh, will embalm that and will – will uh, represent that and will celebrate that um, and will reinscribe that with its specially designed logos and with its minute-by-minute execution room countdowns. Yeah, it's a terrible, brutal system that, that um, in a sort of mocking way, uh, superimposes all the brutality and violence and uh, racism and sexism and misogyny and homophobia of the system back upon the person who has almost been let down most in the entire situation as a victim of this abuse, who, which doesn't justify a crime, but just um, uh, it seems everything is put back upon her. And then, yeah, like I said, you have this moment of denouement, the happy ending where the, the, the poor woman is um, uh, killed as a result. Um, bearing that in mind and bearing what we've just discussed about this idea of her these um, media narratives put upon her life, I don't really think it's appropriate to sort of end this episode in the way we might normally do. So instead, uh, maybe you can just give us some more information on your uh, sources and further reading. Yes, absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's very difficult to find any sources on Eileen Warnos that are not tainted by various obvious biases of one kind or another. So I'm going to try to name some of these sources while also um, – discussing what you might find there that would be troubling if you went there. Um, so first off, and I think these are the two best sources that I that I looked at, um, they're two academic uh, essays. Uh, one of them is by Kyra Pearson um, and is in a journal called Communication and Critical Studies. And the essay is called The Trouble with Eileen Warnos, Feminism's First Serial Killer. Um, and the other one uh, is a book by, uh, sorry, uh, an essay by Megan Foley and a book about various kinds of monsters. And the the essay is called The Monster in the Mirror, uh, and the full details of that are in the show notes, as always. Um, there's also, as we said, the two documentaries by Nick Broomfield, which I highly recommend watching, although, again, they do in some way participate in the centralization that they are critiquing, uh, as I'm sure this episode did as well, um, in ways that are impossible to avoid if you're talking about this. But maybe the Broomfield films could be criticized on those grounds. Um 
There's an essay by Phyllis Chesler that I quoted uh, from the Feminist Journal, Off Our Backs, and the, the essay is called A Woman's Right to Self-Defense, The Case of Eileen Carroll Warnos. Um, listeners who are familiar with kind of feminist historiography may know Off Our Backs as a sort of site of um, anti-sex work feminism and uh, what some might call anti-sex feminism in the 1980s. Uh, the essay itself is um, certainly not to the extent of some uh, anti-sex work feminist texts from the 1980s, but certainly to some extent um, full of uh, those kinds of uh, anti-sex work or sex work exclusionary um, terms and biases. And so uh, while the essay is, I think, a useful analysis of Warnas's, uh, at least her first trial, and uh, Chesler did actually spend a lot of time and energy and money trying to uh, get Warnas uh, retrials and stuff like that. Um, I think uh, we just I just wanted to give that heads up before people uh, went there. Uh, there's also an article about uh, Warnos in a book by Peter Vronsky called Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters. Uh, from the title of that book alone, I think you can tell that that book, uh, while having a lot of information, in it is very problematic and kind of emblematic of a lot of this media stuff we've been talking about. For example, at one point, uh, Tyria Moore is uh, described as being like a, quote, docile cow. Um which just goes to show you how deep a lot of this misogyny goes into uh, all of the writing about um, people like Eileen Warnos. Uh, and then there's a recent Vice article um, called How the Serial Killer Eileen Warnos Became a Cult Hero that's linked in the show notes as well. Uh, and that is sort of about um, the ongoing legacy of Warnos as this kind of uh, cultural figure of uh, reclamation and celebration. So thank you so much uh, for listening to this episode. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. We'll be back next week with more tales of bad gays. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.